Hi. <laughs> did you suddenly become an Eskimo? I did. I, we're <laughs> we're prepping for our fourth winter storm this month. <laughs> so I just figured I should have this on all the time. You what do you think? Should. Is it good? Do, do I, I look love good? it. It's great. Do I look good? You do. Okay. All right. Great. Um, hi. Welcome to... <clears throat> hi. Welcome to History of Haunting. <laughs> From North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. It's like 75 here, so... You know. I mean... It was cold this morning. I was like... Oh. It was chilly. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was. Uh, sure. I'm Carrie, as you I can don't... see below. Yeah, and I'm Laura. As you can see and below. Carrie has her fur-lined jacket on, all ready for the storms. It, storms it, are coming. Yeah, storms are coming. Uh, we had the snow, like, January 3rd, which you everybody saw, Koi and I were excited about. Um, and then Izzy blew through and dumped a shit ton of ice, which was less fun. And then Jasper blew through last weekend, and now we have a nor'easter that's going to be coming through and starting in the Carolina. So I was like, what is happening? It's <laughs> awesome. Fortunately, it's all very manageable snow. We don't have to dig ourselves out of our houses or anything crazy like that. But uh, yeah, so I bought this jacket and I love it. And I love the hood. It's very, um, as you said the other day, Ali Sheedy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very Ali Sheedy. It's very Breakfast Club. Yeah. It's very Breakfast Club, which I love. Um, so yeah hi welcome brand new episode of history of a haunting thank you guys so much black dahlia episode actually uh is a very very popular episode uh the downloads on it have been insane uh so thanks mm. to everybody who has tuned in for the black dahlia it was a conspiracy theory episode that we we released to our patreons back in april of last year back when archman was on the show um and it's been very popular. The The folks love the true crime. So if you love the true crime, come on over and join us on Patreon because every month we will bring you a new true crime story. The Patreons are loving it too, Laura. You did a fabulous job with Jack the Ripper. Man, I had so much fun doing that. It was yeah. really fun. You did a great really, job. Really you did a really great job. And um, because of you, I then w kind of went diving into... Uh, down the rabbit hole and was like oh my god this guy and that guy and this guy um, and then I happened to watch the um, documentary with Jeff Mudgett his H.H. H. Holmes great great grandson uh, where he mm -hmm. uh, it was what was it eight episodes where him and a former CIA agent uh, analyst rather um, kind of explored the possibility that H.H. H. Holmes the guy with the infamous murder castle in Chicago could possibly have been Jack the Ripper and they came up with some compelling arguments to that fact they do and I have I actually saw that when it first came out, so I um, so good. I have a weird thing with H. H. Holmes. I I find him fascinating in the way that you find serial killers fascinating. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like you're super fucked up. I don't. It's something about just how crazy the whole situation in Chicago was. And we're not um, alone. Everybody like that's why true crime podcasts. There are more true crime podcasts than any other podcast in the world. There's right. 2 million podcasts in the world. And a huge percentage of that is true crime podcasts. Um, yeah, people love to hear about it. Yeah, there's a huge percentage of paranormal podcasts, but true crime blows paranormal way out of the water. And if you don't have true crime, you don't have paranormal. So they kind of go part and parcel, I think. 
A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mm -hmm. We need that terrible shit to happen so we can get some hauntings. <laughs> right. Or, you know, horrible asylums or penitentiaries or whatever, what have you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, Laura and I are planning... Um, just in talks of how cool it would be to go to Chicago and kind of follow the H.H. H. Holmes trail. Um, you guys have ideas on that? Let us know. It is a post office now, his former murder castle. Uh, but um, there's still, you know, he was kind of all over the place. He had properties all over um, the Illinois immediate Chicago area. It wasn't just the murder castle. He owned property along the river. Um, it was, yeah, so we're getting out of our armchairs and going to go play detective and we're going to help Jeff Mudgett and uh, Amaryllis Fox prove <laughs> that H.H. H. Holmes was in fact Jack the Ripper. Um, I like it. So if you guys are fascinated by true crime, listen to our kickoff for the year. Laura did an amazing job. Come join us on Patreon. Everybody at the $5 and up level got the episode and we'll continue to get all of our true crime episodes. H-O-A-H podcast um, is our website H-O-A-H podcast.com and if you want to join us on Patreon it's patreon.com slash H-O-A-H podcast so uh, that's that on that and uh, time for the EVPs <laughs> okay EVPs or as we like to call them endless vocal prattling um I just have a couple of EVPs that I want to go over. Laura, let's let you kick off the EVPs. What's been going on in your life? Oh, Jesus. Was I supposed to prepare a speech? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, not a whole lot. I did have the COVID. So sorry about missing last week. It was I Laura's fault. Slept. I slept for like 20 hours. She did. Um, she did. I am better. I'm still super exhausted, which is not the best thing ever. Mm -mm. Um, so I could basically just sleep at any time. Um, other than <laughs> that, <laughs> to be yeah. honest, it's like my mono-like sleeping schedule. Um, For yeah, sure. Just trying to work and be normal and get Zane to... Zane started rugby, so... Oh, that's like fun. Three times a week and... Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah. Um, so... I think that's pretty much it. I mean, besides being sick. Yeah. I, we were supposed to record last Sunday and I had, she was, I texted her at like one o'clock and I'm like, what time do you want to record? That was one o'clock my time. She said as late as possible. I'm like, Hey, well, you know, I'm clearly not working. I have nothing to do. Anytime's fine with me. But by 10 o'clock by time, I hadn't heard from her and I'm like, so I'm going to go to bed. Are you okay? And then I went to bed and I woke up. Check my phone. Still no text from Laura. And I thought, she's fucking dead. She's fucking dead. I'm quite dead. But... Um, and then you texted me about, I don't know, one o'clock my time, which is 11 your time. And um, my computer's not plugged in. Hold on. I'm listening. Oh, dear. Plug this bad boy in. Or oh, All right. great. Okay. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that. There we go. <laughs> Listen, I'm on top of shit. I mean, I mean, you know, you had the Rona. It's fine. Um, you're you're just so tired. Um, yeah. So she was like, I am so sorry. I slept for like 20 hours. I'm like, Jesus Christ. OK. Um, so, yeah, we that's when we decided to default to one of the um, episodes in the vault. 
Uh, and uh, I wasn't sure if Laura wanted to like let everybody know that she had COVID. So that's why I was like, our show got hit with the COVID. Um, so it really could have been I'd... either one of us, frankly. Right. I dodged it for like two years. I mean, I did the best you I did could. Good. I, have, I have all this, you know, we did all the things we could. It finally got us. Because mm-hmm. uh, you, you guys are both fully vaxxed. You got yeah, your booster good. shot. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't prevent you from getting it, but it does prevent you from getting super sick and going into the hospital and potentially dying from it. So, um, yeah, we got over it pretty quick, which was which was great. It's just, now I'm just still tired. He's been fine since like after uh, one day. Meanwhile, yeah. I'm sleeping for hours on. <laughs> That's I'm the like, one thing I've heard. The energy drain is really hardcore is really hardcore it It takes like almost a month to kind of recover and get back to where you were where you were before you got it um like i was fucking tired before this happened (laughs) i live exhausted i don't know when is like the best like where baseline i don't know where baseline is (laughs) i'm always tired yeah Mm. for real for sure um Okay, but you are fine. Zane is fine. You guys are testing negative now, correct? Yep, we're all good. Good. All right, well, I'm really glad. Um, because Me too. it's a scary disease and you never know. It affects everybody differently. Like, look at you. You were fucking taken out and you're still exhausted. And meanwhile, Zane, who you would think would be more ill because he's so young and his immune system isn't as built up as yours, um, it's totally fine. Yeah, the kids seem to bounce back usually pretty quick, though. Pretty quick, yeah. Yeah, unless they have severe um, immunodeficiencies. Yeah, they they really do, which is good. Um, So that's our... for that. Yeah, that's our... We're getting off our COVID soapbox. Laura, we're really glad that you (laughs) survived it. Um, But stay vigilant because I have... A lot of people have known people that have gotten it twice sometimes three times there's those long hauler people um so just you know keep doing what you're doing wear your mask wash your hands all of that fun stuff so all right that's our advice to you mm-hmm. our co-host right thanks um <laughs> <laughs> um the um first announcement and update that i did want to talk about is uh this is our first episode that we recorded after the betty white challenge you guys and we really want to thank everybody all of our fans all of our listeners everybody across the world who participated in the belly belly white nope no Betty White Challenge, uh, which was to donate $5 to your local shelter or rescue in Betty White's name. She was a huge advocate for animal rights. And so this was a grassroots movement that kind of caught traction on social media, caught the attention of major news organizations worldwide. And um, in the days and um, leading up to her 100th birthday on the 17th and in the following days after it, um, shelters, rescues, zoos got almost $13 million in donations in That's her great. name. Yeah. So, uh, we really want to thank everybody who is listening that participated and, um, uh, for everybody who is still making donations in her name, it is certainly the movement that she was worthy of. And I think she really would have been very, very pleased to see that, um, 
Our interns, our animals, Eddie and Chewy and Leia and Tater, did post something on all of our social media, thanking everybody for their support, for their donations, um, and assuring everybody that every single dime does make a huge difference in the lives of all animals. Um, so thank you very much. We are we are very, very grateful that all of you, you know, um, heard the call to action and acted. That's, that's really quite wonderful. Um, so that was my first EVP. My second EVP is, um, you guys all know that I was uh, handpicked and trained by the team at Entity Voices Paranormal Investigations, headed up by Tony and Cherie Rathman. I then went on to um, form a paranormal investigative team with Chris Allgood and Audra Keeler once we all moved to um, the East Coast, Southern Entities Paranormal. So uh, I, we promote their show a lot, Entity Voices Paranormal Evidence. It airs every single Monday um, through StreamYard. It is through KGRA Radio, and you can watch them on Facebook, which is generally where we promote them. They are also on YouTube. But Tony and Cherie Rathman have a son named Dylan, and Dylan is an investigator in training. One of the most amazing things is that Dylan is going to be featured on the Spirit Realm Network with one of the most prolific and in, um, what's the word I want to use to describe him? Um, prolific and intriguing paranormal investigators. And I'm sure most of you have heard of him, Rick McCallum. So, um, Spirit Realm Network is going to be doing a special live event with Rick McCallum and Dylan Rathman at none other than the 1910 jail in Globe, Arizona. Um, so I am super, super excited about this. Uh, Rick is the founder of Hollywood Ghost Hunters. He's teaming up with Dylan and they're both going to take on and investigate the 1910 jail in Globe. So um, I want to go ahead and I want to promote this. We're going to be promoting this every week. It is going to be a live episode. You can find them at spiritrealm.net and um, you can watch the live. It is going to be on um, February 25th and it is going to be from 9 p.m. to 11.45 p.m. And I do believe that that is Arizona time. So we certainly want to um, ask you guys to join the Spirit Realm Network as they venture to Globe, Arizona to bring you another live streaming investigation from the haunted 1910 Globe Jail with veteran paranormal investigator and award-winning author Rick McCallum and introducing 15-year-old paranormal investigator Dylan Rathman. Together, the veteran and the apprentice will explore the historic and active location. Rick will educate and inform while Dylan continues to develop and perfect his own unique investigation style, unlike anyone his age. And Laura, I think you and I can both agree that he's, he is one of the younger paranormal investigators we've ever heard of. Yeah, for sure. For That's sure. Cool. Yeah, for sure. As you guys know, we did cover the 1910 Globe Jail in an episode here on History of a Haunting. And Laura and I did hold a fans and friends event at the jail on December 4th, uh, just last month. Um, so we're super excited that they chose this location to do this live investigation. Um, 
To give you a quick reminder of the history of the jail, it was established in 1910, hence the name. Um, after overrunning the newly built facility in 1905 with the hustle and bustle of the Old West Arizona Territory, the facility was the fourth in succession. The first being made of adobe, which was great pairing with the town's hanging tree. The second jail was actually located inside the first territorial courthouse structure, which stood from 1881 to 1904 at almost the same location, coupled with a newer modern wooden gallows. The third location was located inside even newer and a larger stone territorial courthouse on the exact location as the previous one in tandem with the same wooden gallows. This fourth location, the one we're talking about, the one we've been to, was a new modern concrete structure built on top of the wooden gallows location adjacent to the 1905 courthouse. Looking at the pictures here, the smaller building on the right is the actual jail. The larger building on the left is the court house being attached by a catwalk with the new era of due process versus that of old west vigilantism there would now be no need for the use of the gallows the jail served the territory from 1910 until february 14 1912 when arizona received its statehood and then from 1912 until 1981 when the facility saw its last prisoner now if you did listen to the recap of the 1910 jail with Laura and I, you will know that we actually brought one of those prisoners with us to our fans and friends event. Um, my family friend, Barry, he actually was a trustee in the jail. And uh, yeah, it was really fun and interesting to hear his stories and what it was like actually being um, an inmate in the jail. Whether you were a trustee or whether you were an inmate, you were still a prisoner essentially. So um, really excited to see Rick McCallum and Dylan Rathman team up. Um, Rick McCallum actually began his career in 1982 as a stunt actor. He, he um, uh, performed a fight scene with Chuck Norris on the film um, Lone Wolf McQuaid. And he actually has more than 75 film credits to his name. So um, he's been around for a long time. He um, has doubled for Daniel Baldwin, Barry Bostwick, Greg Evigan, Oliver Platt, Chris Knopf, and many horror icons, including Kane Hodder, who was uh, Jason Voorhees. Um, so he, yeah, uh, Rick McCallum, he's a really wonderful, lovely guy. He has been on Entity Voices Paranormal Evidence for a very long time. Um, he has been featured so many times he was fortunate enough to meet uh dylan rathman um when they rick investigated uh my beautiful uh beginnings uh my family beginnings of the phelps dodge hospital and so from there the the relationships just kind of grew and he was really impressed with dylan's skills and his techniques and and the way that he investigated especially for somebody so young um so they they kind of partnered and 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 decided they wanted to do a really special presentation so we hope you will all join us on um february 25th and watch the live investigation of rick mccallum and dylan rathman we're going to be be promoting this every week uh i won't be going on as long as this every single week but um it's it's really important uh tony and sheree like i said they handpicked me to train me as a professional paranormal investigator and um they're an amazing they've become amazing friends of mine and dylan is really a fabulous investigator um i, I hate to keep saying for as young as he is but that's sort of like 
it's true. He's he's 15 years old, and yet he has the. I've watched video of him, and he has the skills and the the um the take on it of a, of a seasoned paranormal investigator. So um, this is going to be really, really great. And I'm interested to see the dynamic between him and Rick McCallum, who's been investigating for 55 years, Laura. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was the first EVP that we wanted to promote or the second rather. Um, the next one that I wanted to talk about just a real quick second. We got a message from a listener, a new listener who um, had the not had. She still has it, um, has the amazing <laughs> name of Carrie. And um, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, mm. She actually messaged us. She's new to the podcast. And so she was going um, through the episodes, listening listening to them in order. And she came to the episode number five, the Queen Mary episode, which is um, not really an episode that Archie and I promote a whole lot, simply because that was one of those nights where um, it was a really long day and it just we're not really particularly proud of that um episode uh but we had carrie listen to the episode and um send us some very polite critiques of the episode so um i just want to read some of them uh (laughs) she (laughs) says Hi, kids. I'm new to your show. I'm also listening in order from the first onward. I just listened to the Queen Mary podcast. I was a, quote, real honest to God, end quote, tour guide on the ship for four years. Some of the information that you mentioned was questionable at best. (laughs) She kind of pulled you to the carpet pretty quick. Pretty quick, yeah, but I liked it. I like her already. I like it, uh, yeah. I was like, okay, go on. Um, Although there was only a select few of us who made the effort to read any of um, the information given to us. Um, As tour guides, we had access to the archives of the ship, but there was only a select few who actually read it. Um, She says, well, on top of that, I had to have dozens of experiences that would be considered unexplained, including being woken up by someone sitting on my hotel room bed in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, As you know, a spirit does not need to have died in the place they are haunting. Sometimes it's just a wonderful memory that brings them back. Um, Also, there was only two pools on the ship, and I guess maybe we said there were three. Um, The first class pool, which is the only pool on the ship left... And is the pool always seen in pictures? So the famous pictures you see of that pool that's got like the decks above it, that's mm-hmm. this pool. Um, uh, the second class pool, which was located in the stern slash back of the ship. I like how she was like the stern, which is the back of the ship, because dumb people like me <laughs> need to know that. Um, third class was allowed to use a second class pool, but only at specific times. Anyways, don't hesitate to text me about anything about the ship. I'll be honest if I don't know something. Cheers, Clink, Carrie. <laughs> Cheers, Clink, Carrie. Cheers, Clink, Carrie. Thank you so much. Um, so she's like, hi again. I forgot to say how, how much I'm enjoying the show. How fucking rude. <laughs> because <laughs> I had asked her I was like do you mind if I like if I'm if I if I talk about your your message on the show um so she's like anyways yes of course mention away um she did say in all the years she was there she never heard anything about a man killing his whole family on the ship 
Um, so she does talk about John Petter was apparently a young smarty pants and filled to the brim with cockiness. There are some records of him attempting several times to play what would only be called chicken with the doors, you know, that would lift to mm. block water out of the like hull of the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, until of course he was crushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, she did say often Winston Churchill was smoking his cigar and told by young Hispanic housekeepers to put it out and then he would vanish. No big deal. Um, I was like, sure, no big deal. It was Winston Churchill smoking and being told to put his cigars out. Um, anyway, so really, really lovely listener. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear this. I was like, okay, all right. Questionable at best. Well, great. Um... So, you know, maybe we, you know, maybe we have somebody like that on the show sometime, Laura, and we ask them, hey, you had access to the archives. Talk to us about it. Maybe they'd give a little bit of a better history. Um, Yeah. So I was I was pretty glad about that. So I wanted to let everybody know that we had had um, uh, a fan reach out, a new fan reach out and let us know. And one that was an actual tour guide on the ship, which I thought was pretty great. So. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So that is what I have for um, EVPs for the show. Okay. Yeah, that's what I have for EVPs of the show. Uh, do you have anything else? It's almost half an hour in. I'm like, wow, I think we're right. good. <laughs> I think we're good. I think we're good. Um, we are going to keep promoting the Spirit Realm Network and the live event at the 1910 Jail, guys. But it's not going to be nearly as long. But I did need to give an intro to Rick and Dylan, and, and I think it's really wonderful. So uh, for more information on it, you can go to spiritrealm.net. Again, that's from 9 p.m. to 11.45 p.m. on February the 25th, I believe. You got it. Yeah. Okay, so Laura, why don't you tell everybody where we're taking them today? Today we are going to the Missouri State Penitentiary. We are. This is a good one. What are your sources? My sources are voxmagazine.com, Wikipedia, and missouripentours.com. Cool. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so. Yeah, it's (laughs) short, sweet, and to the point. Mine are not. Exactly. Just letting everybody know I got a lot. (laughs) All right. You ready? I think so. I believe I'm ready. Let me check something real super fast. No, I'm ready. I'm ready. Go. Yes. Are you sure? All right. Yeah. So the, the Missouri State Penitentiary was the first penal institution west of the Mississippi River. Okay. It right. It opened its doors in 1836 and operated continuously until 2004. That's a long ass time, almost 200 years. Yeah, that's really so, recent that it closed too. That's pretty impressive. It is. Yeah. For real. Um, the Missouri State Penitentiary, also known as MSP or the Walls, was a notoriously brutal prison. Mm. And in 1967, Time Magazine named it the bloodiest 47 acres in America bloodier than Gettysburg how many acres is that I don't know listen I'm I didn't work for Time Magazine 1960 okay historical historical mathematicians <laughs> let us know <laughs> right. okay um so the state penitentiary was originally designed by John Haviland and constructed in the early 1830s 
to serve the newly admitted state of Missouri. Okay. Uh, Jefferson City had been designated the state capital in 1822, and Governor John Miller suggested that the state's main prison be constructed there to help the city maintain its somewhat tenuous status against other towns trying to obtain the capital for themselves. Oh, wow. All right. So, uh, James Dunica, a master stonemason who built the first capital building in Jefferson City, um, was appointed to oversee the construction of the new prison. And $25,000 was allotted by the legislature for expenses. Um, How much is that in today's money? Dude, I don't know. A lot. Five, <laughs> 500 million. Okay. Right. Um, I'm all, I don't know. You could Google it. Um, <laughs> the facility opened. Fuck you. Plan. I'm gonna. <laughs> Go ahead. And in March 1836, the same month as the fall of the Alamo in Texas, if that tells you how old this is. Okay. Um, prisoners were employed during the 1830s in making the bricks for the prison. Um, of course the they were. the initial prison population consisted of one guard, one warden, 15 prisoners, and a foreman uh, for the brick-making operation. Okay. Um, 11 of the 15 prisoners were from St. Louis, and all were incarcerated for larceny, except for one who was imprisoned for stabbing a man during a drunken brawl. Oh, cool. Okay. So if the, interesting. If the 11 ran away, it's not that big of a public threat. Mm-hmm. The one, okay, just the gotcha. one. Just the one. All right, gotcha. All right. So in 1868, A Hall, also known as Housing Unit A and Housing Unit 4, was finished. Uh, the building was constructed of stone quarried on site and built, um, again, mainly by inmates. Um, they all were, weren't the, they, though? Yeah, it seems they like... They pretty much all pretty, were. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so... Um, where are we? Okay. Uh, from 1938 to 1965, 39 prisoners were executed in the penitentiary's gas chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, on January 6, 1989, inmate George Tiny Mercer was executed. It was the last execution to take place at the Missouri State Penitentiary. You said 89? Execution. Yeah, 89. Wow. All right. And it was the first execution by means of lethal injection. Oh, okay. The execution did still take place in the disused gas chamber. Oh, so, okay. Okay, I gotcha. Right. Okay. So in the early 1970s, uh, the penitentiary attempted to desegregate uh, by moving a few black inmates into an all-white housing unit. After white inmates stabbed the black inmates, desegregation was put on hold. I was just going to, uh, like, I was <laughs> like, oh, Jesus, how'd that go? Not great. Okay. Shocking. Not good. good. Shocking. So a few years later, the federal government did step in and force the prison to fully desegregate. Um, Roughly half of the prison... Because it went so well with a test? Right. With the first time. Um, Right. So roughly half the prison population was black at the time, while most of the prison's staff was white. Um, Official laws prohibited racial discrimination in the facility, but throughout the 1980s, the Missouri State Penitentiary was still pretty prejudiced against black, uh, according to sort of, uh, Neil, who was the guy who wrote this article. Um, <laughs> according to Neil. <laughs> well, according to Neil, this did not go Neil well. Neil said that. Neil and says, yeah. <laughs> according to Neil, that's the official motto of this podcast. Well, according that's to Neil, <laughs> that's what's happening. 
right, so, sorry, go ahead. All right. After 168 years, the prison was decommissioned on September 15, 2004, due to high energy costs from the facility's lack of insulation. Um, I mean, it was all um, stone, right? I'm not surprised. Right, yeah, <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Must have been real shitty in the winter. Oh. Um, all 1,355 inmates were transferred to the Jefferson City Correctional Center. How um, many? Violence, 1,355 at the end. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. It is a lot. That's a lot. Uh, violence was commonplace in the penitentiary, and it was common practice for inmates to make weapons out of bed planks, wood shards, and other materials. Shanks. There were yes. thousands of shanks inside that place, and they were always making new ones, Neil said. Girl, <laughs> good on Neil. weapons himself during his 20 years working at the penitentiary. Okay, good on uh, you, Neil. Good on Neil. As punishment, inmates could be placed in the dungeons, mm-hmm. underground cells that offered no light, bed, toilet, or basic cleanliness. Uh, in 1903, inmate James Johnson documented his time in the dungeons in his memoir entitled Buried Alive, 18 oh, Years yeah. in the Missouri Penitentiary. Yes. Um, and he did spend 18 years in solitary confinement. Yes. Right. Didn't he almost uh, go blind? Um, I want to say yes. I, just I don't feel remember. like I read, because he was his name was Firebug. Nicknamed Firebug? Um, yes, I believe that's him. Okay, right. then yeah, I he almost went blind because it was like pitch black down there. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like the human body is just going to kind of adapt to mm-hmm. its surroundings. Yeah, that's right. interesting. Okay. And I kind of talk about him more in depth in a little bit. Okay, sorry. All right, that's okay. Let's ruin it. Um, <laughs> let me tell you about this dude, Laura. <laughs> okay. well, shut up. <laughs> All right, sorry. All right. Um, so talking about some of the more famous uh, people, mm. um, in 1842, the prison housed its first female prisoner, Amelia um, Eddy. However, she was released after a few days because the prison prison didn't have any facilities for women. So they sentenced her and then just let her go. What um, kind of facilities? They didn't have anywhere to house. They didn't have anything for women. It was all men. So there was no like place they could put her like a... Even in solitary, like I guess, yeah, they just let her go. Okay, like they freed yeah. her, or they moved her to another prison. No, it says they just like they just released her. Oh, cool. All right, <laughs> sounds like a good time to commit crimes. Um, go girls. After the prison, according to Neil, the women really <laughs> went nuts then. <laughs> they sure did. Um, after the prison built a woman's cell block, roughly sixty women were held at any given time, uh, and they tried to get her back. No, I think they let her go. Oh, okay. They just, they were just like, it's fine. Go on. Okay. (laughs) Find that woman. Bring her back. We have space now. (laughs) (laughs) We got a place. We got a place. Um, So one of the most infamous female inmates was Emma Goldman, whose advocacy for birth control in 1917 inspired the creation of Planned Parenthood and the American Civil Liberties Union. Wow. Really? Yeah. So pretty cool. And that's how she ended up in prison. (laughs) But, you know. These things happen. I mean, trailblazers never have an easy path. They just don't. don't. They don't. No. So in 1918, Katie Richards O'Hare was held on espionage charges for her work as chairman of the Socialist Labor Party. Um, Not as impressive a crime. No, not as good. Not as good. Um, She was forced to work 50-hour weeks and forbidden from contacting her husband and four children. 
Uh, when she was released, she dedicated her life to prison reform, inspiring many of today's prison laws. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I wasn't really feeling too bad for her with a 50 hour work week because we know that. <laughs> right. right. Same bitch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> right. Okay. But yeah, okay. Good for her. Her story got better. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Yeah. I know the women really like, hey, you're not a bad kid. They like, really. Doing, doing mm-hmm. good stuff over there. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. the others were being thrown into Trans Allegheny for bad whiskey, reading a novel, and questioning their husbands. Right. <laughs> Uh, by 1926, all women were actually moved off pre- premises uh, to a different correctional center. Um, okay. So they didn't keep them there very long. <laughs> Maybe you don't actually belong here. Right? <laughs> yeah, that seems so bad. <laughs> um, the, fa- the prison is also famous uh, for riots. So. Um, Love a good 500... riot. Yeah. I mean, they always are, right? Uh, an old-timey uh, riot. Don't People don't riot now. <laughs> but an old-timey riot was pretty, you know, kind of entertaining. Right? So here is um, a copy of a Times Past column that the Irish Times um, ran um, during the, this time. So The um, Irish Times. Listen, are there any other times? No, there aren't. <laughs> Just Irish times. <laughs> As a Cherokee Indian, I beg to differ. Let's talk about the Cherokee times. <laughs> As a Irish person, I stick with the Irish times. Some okay, so some five hundred. It's more your part. Convicts. We'll do it. Yeah, some five hundred more convicts at the state Missouri State Penitentiary mutinied today. Seven hundred and fifty prisoners in the same institution struck yesterday, following on the refusal of their demand for grilled meat instead of the continual Irish stew, <laughs> and refused to leave the dining hall. Though they had, they were subsequently persuaded to disperse peacefully by the governor. The prisoners today, who demand better food and better working conditions, down tools at all the prison factories. They were quickly marched back to their cells. They were rioting because they were constantly getting Irish stew. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Can we get a cheeseburger in here? I mean, come on. (laughs) So the governor announced today that he had discovered an organized plot among the convicts responsible for today's riot to set fire to the prison factories and make their escape. Um, And that was originally published in the Irish Times, March 28th, 1930, which I just thought was super funny. (laughs) I'm sick of Irish stew. They're like, mutinate. <laughs> no more stew. I mean, kind of. Like, don't you remember back when everybody, like, in their early 20s could only afford ramen and that's all we were eating? Like, I would riot if that's like, please just let me afford some, you know, chicken Kiev or something fun once in a while. It's constant ramen. I get it. Like, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I do get it. Yeah. Poor so, people have um, poor ways. My uncle Koi always said. <laughs> Uh, The other less fun riot um, began (laughs) on the evening of September 22nd, 1954, (laughs) Um, and this was a major riot. So it started when two inmates faked illness to attract two guards. Once the guards arrived, inmates ambushed them and took their keys. The inmates then ran down the cell blocks and corridors, releasing other inmates in the process. Oh, shit. Um, Okay. Yeah. So during the incident, the Missouri State Highway Patrol, the Missouri National Guards, and police departments from Jefferson City, St. Louis, and Kansas City were called in to help quell the riot. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. 
when it was all over, four inmates had been killed, 29 had been injured, and one attempted suicide. Four guards were seriously injured. Um, several buildings were burned, with damages estimated at $5 million. Holy shit. No inmates were able to escape during the incident. Good. Um, right. Um, burned buildings and other damage from the riot would remain visible for the next 10 years. Is this the prison that, like had a bazooka fired on it in one of the towers and you can still see where the bazooka hit or is that a different one that might be a different one i think that might be a different one yeah i didn't see anything i didn't hear read anything about a bazooka shit i think that's an upcoming episode everybody forget what i just said (laughs) it'll be a surprise for later yay um Right, so some of the most famous inmates uh, that were housed here um, our favorite asshole, James Earl Ray. Yeah. Yeah. So James Earl Ray uh, was raised Brushy in... Brushy Mountain Ewing. James Earl Ray. Mm-hmm. That's okay. the same guy. Okay. Um, he was raised in Ewing, Missouri, a small poverty-stricken farming community. Uh, the Ray family fell into the low end of the Ewing, Ewing lower class and was known as the town's white trash. <laughs> Ray later Shocker. moved to Quincy, Illinois. I know. He later moved to uh, Quincy, Illinois, a rowdy river community on the Mississippi River, where he began associating with the town's unquote, quote unquote, bad element, and okay. getting into minor scrapes with the law. Uh, in 1959, Ray and an accomplice held up a Kroger store in St. Louis, and after being caught, tried, and convicted, Ray was sentenced to 20 years of the Missouri State Penitentiary for holding up um, a grocery store. Yes. Okay. Um, he had. Previously served terms in Joliet and Pontiac prisons in Illinois and Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. So Those are some hardcore fucking prisons. Yeah, they are. Joliet and Leavenworth. So, I Pontiac I'm not familiar with, but Joliet and Leavenworth are hardcore prisons. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so after several escape attempts at MSP, Ray made one final escape plan in 1967. He reported to his job in the prison bakery early and was helped into a large box that was used to ship loaves of bread. Soon, a truck drove up to pick up a supply and several boxes, including the one containing rain. Didn't he do this at Brushy? Uh, He did escape Brushy, and then they found him. He was like an escape artist. He was always, you know, these prisoners. But didn't he, like, pack himself in as roast beef, or was that somebody else? No, that was somebody else. Oh, doing the yoga. (laughs) Okay, okay, all right. But they did, he did get over the wall, I think, in, um, in Brushy, and then they found him. Like, not far. Because remember, Brushy's like, there's nowhere to fucking go. Right. Yeah, so they found him later. Okay. Not too far. Um, Man, they were okay. really, that's out of the box thinking. I'd be like, I'm just going to try to tunnel through the wall like Andy Dufresne in Shawshank. And I, right. These guys are. Sorry. So done. Yeah, sorry, right. go on. So, James um, Orway. So. Right. So he got out, um, and it was, and he had escaped. Um, they did not catch him. Um, unfortunately, he stayed on the lamb um, until about a year later when he assassinated Martin Luther King. Um, and then we know that he was sentenced to Brushy. Where he tried uh, to he, escape from there. And it's, yeah, it's a, yeah. It does say that too, yeah. So sorry, sorry. That's okay. He was sentenced to ninety nine years when he went to Brushy, and then you know he tried to escape multiple times, which we cover in our Brushy Mountain episode. Yeah. So feel free to go up on that one. So, 
Back to Mr. Firebug Johnson. Ah, yeah. Okay, so um, in the 1880s, a man caught the public's attention with his antics in prison. That man was Firebug Johnson, one of the most notorious of all the inmates ever served a sentence at the penitentiary. Johnson attempted to escape several times, but was best known for his most notorious act, setting a fire that destroyed more than $500,000 worth of property and the death of several inmates. Mm. Johnson was then convicted of arson in a Cole County court and given an additional 12 years, after which he was locked in the dungeon for many years. After he was finally released, um, he did write the book, Buried Alive for 18 Years, in the Missouri Penitentiary. I kind of want to read that. Do you? I do, because I kind of want to know, like, did he write it from a victim's standpoint or from a prisoner's standpoint or... I'm kind of curious because while that was inhumane, mm-hmm. you 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 kind of set fire and killed people. Like I I, I don't right. know. I I kind of want to. I'd like to read the book simply to know from what perspective he's he wrote he wrote it. Yeah, Honestly. it'll be interesting. I mean, yeah. yeah. Again, like he did kill people that ended up like you know, yeah, in solitary. I'm not saying that was humane, but. Not for as long as maybe he don't was. People. I mean, maybe try that. Maybe don't set <laughs> fires and you know. Um, but yeah, solitary confinement in that in those kinds of conditions are inhumane. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of interested to. to I, I'd kind of like to read it just as read the perspective he writes it like was he this horrible victim buried alive for 18 years? Kind of tells mm-hmm. me that he you know felt that he was a victim, but does he admit that he deserved punishment, but maybe not this punishment? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. It is. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, another famous one was Charles Sonny Liston. Um, I've heard of this guy. He, you heard of this guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of interesting. So um, he was serving time for two charges of robbery with a deadly weapon and two charges of larceny. Um, he was a literate, one of 17 children, and rarely held a job. Jesus. Um, right. So while he was incarcerated, um, he learned how to box, and he was really good at it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so one day, the publisher of a St. Louis newspaper saw Liston box and thought he showed promise as a professional. Uh, the next day, he contacted the board of probation and parole. If Liston could be released on parole, the publisher promised he would personally see that Sonny received a job in training as a boxer. So he was released on parole in 1952, and his rise to success was meteoric. He learned to read and write a bit, and his associations with businessmen and managers taught him grooming and polish. He lived and trained at the Pine Street YMCA and began working at Scone Steel until he could support himself from his earnings as a pro boxer. Wow. Uh, yeah, almost immediately, Liston was entered into the Golden Gloves Amateur Boxing Tournament held in St. Louis. He won and then went on to win the National Heavyweight Championship in Chicago in 1953. Wow, okay. Yeah, pretty crazy, huh? That is crazy. Yeah. Um, okay, so escapes. Wait, that was it for him, for Liston? That's it for him. He won the National So he got married, had a wife, children, and lived a very pure life the rest of his life, right? I'm pretty sure. For a guy who likes beating the shit out of other men. <laughs> He's good at it, though. Good for him. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. Escapes. 
All right, so escapes were commonplace, as we kind of alluded to earlier. Mm. Why um, do I love prison stories so much? I'm like, tell me all about the escapes. Right? Um, I might have problems. So by 1868, the convict population had grown to 735, and many of them worked outside the walls. Um, kind of like, you know, we would talk about they would be doing stuff for... Um, the townspeople and such, right? Like a trustee so, kind of situation, like Barry yeah, was. Yeah. Okay. So, um, one convict had escaped and stole um, a horse <laughs> to make his getaway. Uh, what else but was other there? People <laughs> terrorized the townspeople. So at some point, they had started to arm themselves. The people that lived around this, because remember, this isn't a big city. Okay. This isn't out in the middle of nowhere like Russia. Sure. Right. Um. So in 1868, a spectacular and terrifying story made the headlines. An underground passage was discovered reaching nearly under the wall. It had been detected just in time. Um, the townspeople shuddered at the lurid prospect of 700 loose convicts robbing and ravishing at will. Nope. Public outcry demanded that something be done about the prison. And in 1870, some convicts successfully gained their freedom by jumping on board of freight trains that were going by as they were doing work outside. Okay. Of the walls. The prison guards complained that the trainmen of the Pacific Railroad were intentionally encouraging the inmates to escape. <laughs> Probably. Right. Yeah. So the guard, guard J.P. Rafel, testified, I have seen the managers of the train throw apples to the convicts and motion at them. When I arrived at the train, the managers seemed to be angry. I think I would regard the motions made by the trainmen as being friendly to the escape of the prisoners. Okay. So they were telling them to hop on board. I just think that's crazy. That's kind of funny. Have an apple. Like, mm-hmm. come on. Come on. Um, <laughs> one man whose idea to leave town in 1924 was a little premature uh, earned a place in escape history. While most escape attempts were made by convicts out on work detail or were carefully planned strategies to scale the wall or storm the gates, Walter Holub had a different idea. Holub had been sent to clean out a sewer pipe that lay within the prison. Okay. Not caring much for doing the assigned job, he stuck his head into the 16-inch pipe and wriggled his way to the outside where he emerged coated with sewage. Sure. How's this sound? How familiar does this sound? He managed to make his way out of Jefferson City and, in fact, entirely out of the state before he was apprehended in Denver, Colorado, six months later after robbing a drugstore. Aw, why didn't you just go to Mexico like Andy Dufresne did? I know, man. Come on. So, yeah. That's it for the history of Missouri State Penitentiary. Um, (laughs) That was was so good. I love it. Basically a shit show from (laughs) beginning to end. Aren't they all, though? Like, aren't they all? I find the more penitentiary stories we do, and the more you talk about the escapes, I'm Mm. more... That's so entertaining. Like the guy who like hid in a bread truck or the guy who like practiced yoga so he could like pretend he was roast beef. In a right. So he bo- could fit in this box. Yeah. I mean, some of them, I mean, I think it's funny that the trains going by were like, come on, hop on. And yeah. then um, the, I mean, obviously the Andy Dufresne guy. And then you have, Who fucked that um, up hardcore? Like, right. Yeah. And then James Earl Ray, like, if he hadn't escaped from this prison, he wouldn't have been there to assassinate Martin Luther King. He wouldn't have, no. But honestly, in that instance, I think 
if it hadn't been him, it would have been somebody else. Somebody else. It would have been somebody else just because he was such a prolific figure. Um, You know that James Earl Ray wasn't alone in his thought. So there was Mm -hmm. probably, he was probably part of a network of people. Um, There was probably a backup plan. If he couldn't get out, there was probably somebody else waiting. Um, Yeah. uh, But that guy escaped from a lot of prisons. Yeah. He yeah, escaped from Brushy. Yep. And that, yeah, but I mean, he wasn't, he was caught like a couple days later, but um, mm-hmm. his escape from Missouri State Penitentiary and as long as he was on the lam was what allowed him. Almost a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm, to, to assassinate Martin Luther King. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think said about a chain of events that it was not his intention. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it was good, but it, it he was trying to assassinate him for one sole purpose. He was rallying mm-hmm. the troops, kind of. Um, and then when he assassinated him, that just bolstered the movement. Um, so I love that he is... He's he's nothing, really. Mm-hmm. In the in the in the grand scheme of things, he's nothing. As is any murderer of anybody mm-hmm. ever, be it Martin Luther King or your neighbor down the street. The murderer is nothing. It's the person that they that they murdered that I think is um, important. And right. you know, um, he tried. I'll give him that. Mar- <laughs> James R. Ray escaped escape from a lot of places. He tried. Um, but he was kind of a huge failure in all of it. So, absolutely. And yeah. he thought he was going to be a hero. And he thought he was going to be a hero, a thousand percent. And he's just reviled in history. He's just, yeah, he's relegated to a ghost that haunts these places we talk about, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, great job. Great job. Oh, yeah. I only There's knew. There's a lot, but I only knew about uh, James Earl Ray and Firebug Johnson. You covered a lot. Like the women. I love that. Oh, yeah. I thought the women were great. And there's like a whole, I mean, there's a whole bunch more history on Mm -hmm. them, of course, but. Yeah. I'm just touching on it. And those were some incredible women who did a lot of amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love it. And um, kind of thank God they went to the prison instead of Trans-Allegheny. Because, like, you and I have covered a number of asylums, too, where they could have easily been sent to an asylum and medicated, and they never would have been able to tr- blaze those trails. So, um, 100%. God, we think we live in harsh times. Honestly, I really believe that we don't know what harsh times are. Right now, I like, the world is on fire, but... I feel like we don't we don't really know as as women i yeah, i mean in certain countries we've come a long way we've come a long way we've come a long way um this place is not without its share of ghosts uh so we're gonna take a quick pause for you guys listeners and viewers it's gonna be a blip of time uh we're gonna take a really quick pause and then i'm going to come back and talk to you about the hauntings and even more reasons why it was the bloodiest 47 acres in america and uh zane says hi i'll just go ahead and say that we will be right back in just literally one second Okay, sorry. I 
was confused. I have a lot of screens up to produce this show, and I wasn't sure what was right. Um, <laughs> my sources. Okay. I have Legends of America, News Tribune, the Missouri Times, Haunted Journeys, Wikipedia.com, all.com, and then also FBI.gov. I went deep with this one. So, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, not that the FBI talks about the hauntings uh, so, so much, but... Uh, that's a good that's a good resource if you're wanting to to delve a teeny bit into the true crime which independent penitentiary why wouldn't you of course so like laura said it is uh known as the bloodiest 47 acres in america uh it was the oldest continuously operating correctional institution west of the mississippi river when it closed like she said um (laughs) as such it should come as no surprise that it is said to be haunted So after the prison closed, it fell into disrepair before it reopened as a tourist attraction, offering history and paranormal tours. Sometimes these tours are led by former inmates and guards. Same thing with Brushy, same thing with Eastern State. I love it all. Um, It is actually, and Laura, I don't know if you came across this in your history, but it is only one of three maximum security prisons that can be toured today the others are eastern state penitentiary in philadelphia and alcatraz in san francisco did you know that i did read that did you read that that's Mm. really cool i like that yeah that's cool which surprises me that brushy's not on that list um but these three prisons and we have done episodes on all of them mm-hmm. um Missouri State obviously being now uh, are pretty hardcore so nearly 100 years older than Alcatraz it comes as no surprise that the old structure is said to be home to several home to several resident ghosts and numerous paranormal events that have been reported throughout the years tales of ghostly visitors began long actually long before the prison closed with both prisoners and guards reported having seeing apparitions um which i love i am here for that and why not Mm -hmm. that should be how it is so a hall um not a hole which <laughs> a hall. I almost said just now. Mm-hmm. Um, a hall is the prison's oldest building and said to be a hotspot of unearthly activity. Inside the massive stone building are four tiers of cells. Now, let me see if I can bring that picture up correctly. Um, hold on, I have a thing. I didn't write it down where to go. Crap. Um, I'm going to push a button and we'll see if that works. All right. I like this. I don't. I hate it. You know I hate it. (laughs) It's button roulette. There we go. Hey. Yay. It sells. There we go. Um, Inside the massive stone building are four tiers of cells that look just like this with catwalks that crisscross its width. The doors of the cells are less than five feet high, which force prisoners to stoop down and take a subordinate posture when leaving their cells. Early on, inmates were not allowed to look guards in the eye, an infraction that could result in the punishment at the whipping post or solitary confinement. 
Um, this reminds me a lot of Eastern State and Alcatraz mm-hmm. and Ohio State Reformatory, where it was just like levels upon levels upon levels of cells. So in this building, paranormal reports have included the feeling of having been touched by ghostly hands that you and I have agreed. We don't love that mm-hmm. idea. Don't um, this is worse. This is where I'd rather be touched than this. An overwhelming smell of body odor. Mm. Mm-mm. No, thank you. Um, an apparition of a man spied on the catwalk and movements in the darkness. Equipment often malfunctions here. Not surprising. Mm -hmm. Uh, Disembodied voices have been captured on recorders, and some have felt an invisible force breathing down their necks. Interesting. I don't love it. I don't love any of it. But I want to experience all of it. All of it. Uh, Within this building is a basement of dungeons, referred to as The Hole. Here uh, were kept death row inmates, violent and disruptive prisoners, and those suffering from mental problems. The only light in these cells came from a small slit in the door. Now, as Laura described in detail, one inmate, John B. Firebug Johnson, was housed in the dungeon for 17 years between February 26, 1883 to July 1900. Is that correct, Laura? Is that what your notes sh- showed? Uh, that yeah, seems so. that sounds about right. It's okay. Pretty, it's pretty on it's, the money. It was... The 1880. Okay, good. All right. I yeah. just wanted to make sure that I hadn't, like, typoed this shit. No, you're good. Okay. So prior to his placement in the dungeon, he had attempted to escape several times, as she had already mentioned, and had started several fires. He was moved to the basement after setting a fire that destroyed more than $500,000 worth of property and the deaths of several inmates. Amazingly, he didn't go mad, and upon his release, he wrote a book called Buried Alive for 18 Years in the Missouri Penitentiary, which I do want to read. I, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the take he could possibly, like, what is the take he could possibly have written this book by? Um, but anyway. Now, Cell 48 once housed a prisoner who was known to be a snitch. And what, Laura, what's your favorite saying? Snitches get stitches. There you go. He was bludgeoned to death with a sledgehammer during the prison riot of 1854. (laughs) A lot of riots in this joint. Yeah, like I alluded to, there were a lot of... Yeah. A a lot of riots. A lot. Um, Here, people have reported having strange, heavy feelings, and an unearthly human figure has been caught on camera several times. So, near the control room, and in some of the housing units, is said to lurk an entity known as Fast Jack. Did you come across him in any of your research? I don't think so. Okay. So, he's usually spied wearing a white lab coat and carrying a clipboard. He is thought to have been a trustee who worked in the medical facilities. Hmm. Which, I don't know as i put trustees there. <laughs> I mean, right. they were criminals. Like, why? Like, I, I, I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, a tour guide passed through the control center to secure the outer doors. Only to return just a few minutes later to find all the locked doors had been opened. This antic was attributed to Fast Jack. 
Others report him as having been seen in hallways moving through walls or appearing for short moments before vanishing. Sorry, I had to move a sticky. That was that no, noise. Sorry. You do, it. you do your stickies. Sorry. <laughs> I, I hate <laughs> unexplained noise in a podcast, so sorry. Sticky. Oh, yeah. They're usually Zane if you hear stuff in the background. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so now in the female wing, one female ghostly figure is often seen dressed in vintage clothing. Others have seen a man in an outdated prison uniform leaning against a fence. Strangely, some have seen or heard the ghosts of children and others, Hmm. even a dog. The dog can be easily explained. Children, not so much. So, throughout the old facilities, people have heard cell doors slamming, ghostly footsteps, loud banging, shadowy figures, the smell of cigarette smoke, objects being mysteriously moved around, and fast-moving entities. They also report having felt dread, a sense of sorrow, and a feeling of being watched. I think we all know that feeling. Mm-hmm. Of being watched. I don't love it. And especially when you look around and you're like, okay, there's literally no one around me. That's creepy and unexplainable, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had the experience of smelling the cigarette smoke a lot at the <coughs> 1910 jail. Excuse me. Yeah, we did. And like where you're in the middle, there's nowhere it could be coming from. Nowhere. It just come and go. Mm-hmm. Like... And it was strong and very specifically cigarette smoke. Yeah, it was primarily on the second floor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're right. Yep. I'll be curious to see if Rick and Dylan have that same experience during the Spirit Realm Network Live that we promoted in the beginning of the show. Yeah, Um, I am too. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I'm I'm definitely going to watch that so I can... For sure. I'm going to see what happens to them. Having been there and having investigated, mm-hmm. I'm really and, interested to see. And you see know, what, yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm really interested to see how their stuff goes, what they do, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. We had a very mellow night, but the EVPs were off mm-hmm. the charts. I'm wondering Crazy. if they will have a different experience it's all it's all it's always different it's always different Mm -hmm. um they don't the spirits in a building don't cater to you uh they just kind of do what they want to do and that night for us they didn't want to um be too visual but man were they audio Mm -hmm. they were everywhere it was loud in there that night so um with Missouri State Penitentiary, which is what the episode is actually about. Uh, (laughs) The Gothic-style penitentiary ranks as one of the most incredible haunted prisons in the country, along with Eastern State, uh, Ohio State Reformatory, or where Andy Dufresne escaped from. Uh, Mansfield is also another one. In Ohio is another Mm -hmm. name. And the West Virginia Penitentiary, also known as Moundsville, which we also have covered. You, we love a penitentiary on this podcast, apparently. We really do. We really do. An asylum, a penitentiary. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're down for it. Yeah. I'm, uh, we must feel at home at both. Um, <laughs> several major ghost hunting groups have conducted investigations at the prison over the years, recording ghostly voices and shadowy people. Um, Tom Wells, who began working as one of the prison's guards in 1989, um didn't you say that was the year that the 
execution stopped in 89. Mm-hmm. They okay, did. and the it closed, last one was in 89. Okay, and it closed in 2004. Um, so this gentleman, Tom Wells, said they pretty much just worked a lot of the inmates like slaves. It was pretty brutal. Um, Wells now leads some of the prison's ghost tours, and although he considers himself more of a tour guide, his own paranormal experience as a guard has made him a firm believer of what remains inside the prison's now vacant cells. Uh, he says, quote, I'm the guy that lucked into the coolest part-time job in the whole wide world because I'm not a ghost hunter. I just happened to be an officer that when I worked here, I had an experience one day. So he says that on a sunny day around three o'clock in the afternoon, he had been talking to an inmate named John when he noticed another inmate with long blonde hair in a white T-shirt walk out of a door during count. He says, quote, they know they're not supposed to be outside. And I thought to myself, you son of a bitch, I'm going to jump down this guy's throat. And I go out there and nobody's there. I thought, man, he's running around the building. So I went right up the side of the building. Nobody was there at the big gate. And the big gate is there and it's all locked. And I was like, I know I seen this guy. So I ran to the left side and there's a tower right there. I said, hey, has anybody ran by here? And the guard up there said, no, it's count time. It's locked down. So I'm like, okay. And there's a van sitting there where we used to take supplies up the hill. And I thought, my God, he's in the van. We've got an escape attempt. It's on a hill, so... I'm looking underneath the van as I walk up and I look in the back windows. The seats are all taken and I look in there and there's nothing there. So I open it up. And in the meantime, John, the inmate has stepped out front and was watching me. I shut the doors and I'm like, what? And he goes, you ain't going to find that guy. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I saw him. I said, what did he look like? And he said he had long blonde hair and a white t-shirt. And I'm like, yeah. And he says, Wells, we ain't got nobody in this building that looks just like that. And I was like, whoa, you're right. It felt like somebody had just punched me in the chest. So they both saw this inmate, air Mm -hmm. quote. Um, But it wasn't a current inmate. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So That's cool. Yeah. Interesting. I like it. Um, so supposed paranormal events, including laughter rising from within the walls, cell doors slamming on their own, unexplained lights, and feelings of being touched by hands. Of all of these, I don't love the overwhelming smell of body odor or the laughter rising from <laughs> within empty walls. I don't. Right. Those are very unsettling experiences, don't you think? I agree. Yeah. Especially if they were combined. <laughs> right. God, put Smelly your arms down. does not sound good. No, that's not fun. Um, so, uh, the most infamous uh, individuals at Missouri State Penitentiary were Bonnie Hetty and Carl Hall. Did you come across them in your research? I did. You did? Okay. I did. Okay. I, sorry, I had to take a, I, I had to take a slug of wine for this one. <laughs> so in 
So, um, now let me just make sure I got my ducks in a row for this one. Okay, I think I do. Okay, sorry. Right. Um, so, in September of 1953, Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty kidnapped six-year-old Bobby Greenlees from Notre Dame de Sion. Did I say that right? S-I-O-N? I think so. Okay. Mm-hmm. A Catholic preschool located in Kansas City, Missouri. The kidnappers were drug-addicted alcoholics. Great combination. Mm-hmm. Living together. Fun couple. Fun couple. <laughs> uh, living together in nearby St. Joseph, Missouri. In the early 1930s, Hall had attended Hall had attended Kemper Military School in Boonville with Paul Robert Greenlees, Bobby's adopted older brother. Hall had planned for years to victimize his former classmate's wealthy family. So Hetty Bonnie Hetty had visited six-year-old Bobby's school and persuaded a nun, Sister Morand, that she was his aunt telling her that his mother had suffered a heart attack and was in St. Mary's Hospital, and she was there to collect the boy. She then took Bobby away in a taxi when another nun from the school later that day rang to inquire about Mrs. Greenlease's condition. Everyone discovered the truth, and Mrs. Greenlease and, and her husband contacted the FBI. So what happened was uh, Carl Hall and Bonnie Heading had taken the child across the state line to Johnson County, Kansas, where Hall shot him dead with a snub-nosed 38 caliber revolver. They then took the child's body back to St. Joseph and buried him in the backyard of Bonnie Heading's house. After the murder, Hall and Hetty sent Bobby's father, who at the time was a multi-millionaire Cadillac car dealership owner, and he had owned Cadillac dealerships from Texas to Illinois. Wow. Yeah. So in the early 50s, he was an exceptionally wealthy man. Right. Yeah. So after the murder, they contacted his father, who was Robert Greenlee's senior, because he was, Bobby was Robert Greenlee's junior, um, sent the father messages in the mail and started making phone calls demanding a ransom of $600,000 in 1953. Wow. Hazard a guess as to how much that is <laughs> today. Just guess. $30 million. Low. Much lower. Oh, I don't know. Ten million. Five point eight million dollars today. Okay. But so still a lot of money. A lot of money. Um Greenlees, the father, desperately trying to save his son, held off the authorities and paid the money. At the time it was the largest ransom ever paid in American history. Wow. And it remains so. Until the 1972 kidnapping of Virginia Piper. Did you, do you know about that one? It sounds familiar, but I can't place what the... She was a wife. She was a wife of a, of a wealthy millionaire. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hall 
the kidnapper and the guy that shot him became convinced the police would trace him and Hetty to St. Joseph. So he randomly decided to drive to St. Louis. The couple collected the ransom and fled. So as a reminder to the timeline, they kidnap the child, they shoot the child, they bury the child, they demand a ransom, they get the ransom, and then they leave. Right. So... Two police officers, Lieutenant Louis, not Louis, sorry, I'm, I've been watching Versailles on Netflix, so Louis, <laughs> sorry, Ira Shoulders and Patrolman Elmer Dolan, so just remember Shoulders and Dolan, told mm-hmm. a grand jury that the $300,000 they turned over was the full amount confiscated from Hall when they arrested him. This statement was false. In fact, Shoulders had taken half of the $600,000 ransom that Hall had on him in trunks at the time of his arrest. And more, yeah, more on that later. Okay. So, on October 5th, 1953, Hall had purchased two metal suitcases and transferred the ransom money from the duffel bag that it was delivered in, in, given in, uh, to these suitcases, leaving the duffel bag in an ash pit in South St. Louis. Carl Hall took Bonnie Hetty, who was drunk, to an apartment he rented on Arsenal Street, also in St. Louis. He Hetty Hetty immediately went to sleep. Obviously, she was drunk. Mm -hmm. And Hall deserted her there, leaving only 2,000 of the $6,000 ransom in her purse. And he took the rest with him. Let's take a gander at these two buttes, shall we? <laughs> Maybe. We shall. There they are. Yeah. Yeah. Douchebags. Douchebags. So, the story with these two and how they met, um, she was seven years older than him, which she kind of looks at, although, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he uh, met her at a bar. She was drunk. He was drunk. Uh, and she kind of, he he kind of made her out as an easy mark. You know, like, he told her she was beautiful and, oh, my God, he loved her. And then um, that night they went home together at the, from the bar and he never left. Yeah, so it's one of those sadder tales of a one-night stand where, you know, I mean, it happens. It almost sounds like most lesbian relationships that I know of. (laughs) Fortunately, they don't end up like this. I hope, I hope, I hope. Um, So he uh, takes her to an apartment, a cheap apartment, which apparently she resented the fact that it was like a cheap, dirty apartment. They just had like all this money. And he takes her to this, like, ghetto. Um, And then he deserts her. So eventually, after he was arrested, he implicated her. And again, the police found her at an apartment at 4504 Arsenal Street. And after talking to her, they discovered Bobby's body in a shallow grave. Sorry. Excuse me. (laughs) Speaking of drunk people. Or just oh, hiccupy yeah. people. No, I mean, <laughs> hiccupy. Hiccupy. I mean, hiccupy. 
Um, <laughs> great. Now, every time I hiccup, you're going to be like, you're fucking drunk. <laughs> it's 7 a.m. <laughs> um, they found Bobby's body in a shallow grave in her backyard, which is just goddamn disgusting. Yeah, and slightly damning for her. A thousand percent. So Bobby's kidnapping and murder scandalized the nation and soon led to federal indictments for Hall and Hetty. Both pleaded guilty to kidnapping and murder and were executed together in the Missouri State Penitentiary gas chamber on December 8th, 1953. Only 11 weeks and four days passed between the crime and the executions, which is almost fucking unheard of today. That's crazy, yeah. Right? That's super crazy. So, Hetty is only one of four women to ever have been executed by federal authorities. The others being Lincoln assassination conspirator Mary Surratt in 1865, Ethel Rosenberg, who, along with her husband, Julius, was convicted of being a Soviet spy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're a good mm -hmm. story, too. Yeah, they are a good one. Um, And executed by electric chair on June 19th, 1953, just months before Bonnie Hetty. And the fourth woman, this is hella fucking recent. The fourth woman is Lisa Montgomery of Kansas, who was executed by lethal injection on January 13th, 2021 for the 2004 murder of Bobby Joe Stinnett. Do you know this case? I don't. You don't? I don't think I do. Maybe I do if you tell, because I, you know, there's so much. There's so much. I mean, my God. I can't remember everybody's name. Yeah. So this woman, um, uh, she basically befriended this Bobby Joe Stinnett who was seven to nine months pregnant. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about now. Yeah. 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 That's this woman. Oh, she's a fucking crazy. Something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Hetty is only one of four women. Woman. Maybe I'm drunk. Women. (laughs) I'm going to send you my notes and you just finish this up. Um, Yeah, for sure. Whatever. Um, Only one of four women to ever have been executed by federal authorities. State is completely different. It's completely different. Um... So, yeah, I mean, that's... Right. They that's cross kind of, state lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really kind of telling. So, mm-hmm. since the federal government did not have any execution facilities, Missouri State's facilities, and thus the then-legal gas chamber, were used to carry out the executions. Uh, yeah. This was the case for all federal executions in the 20th century before the first executions at the federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, in 2001. That's so recent. I mean, it's really not, but it is. Um, I still think 1990 was 10 years ago. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah. So, um, (laughs) Hetty is the only woman executed by the federal government by gassing. She grew up and is buried in, who cares? Uh, Coincidentally... Uh, they fuck her and who <laughs> no one gives a fuck uh, coincident, uh, coincidentally the county where she grew up is where Stinnett lived when she murdered or 
uh, Stanette lived when she was murdered by Montgomery in 2004. What's going on in Missouri? I mean... Missouri people, let us know. What's talk happening? to us. Do you feel safe? Blink if you need us to call you help. <laughs> I mean, my God. So, only $288,000 of the 600000 in ransom money was recovered. The missing $312,000 remained a subject of wide speculation. Both officers uh, were convicted of perjury. Shoulders was found guilty on April 15th, 1954 and sentenced to serve three years in prison. He was also believed to be in the employ of local mobster Joseph G. Costello. Now, Shoulders died on May 12th, 1962. Meanwhile, his buddy cohort yeah. co- cohort uh dolan was convicted on march 31st 1954 and sentenced to two years in prison dolan later maintained that he perjured himself because of his fear of shoulders it because all right <clears throat> let me start over Dolan, I might have written this wrong. Dolan later maintained that he perjured himself because his fear of shoulders exceeded his fear of prison. I wrote it right. I just read it wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, okay. He later received a pardon from U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson. Johnson made solid decisions. I mean, how can you just... I mean, so many. So many. So many. Um, But... Needless to say, the $312,000 was never recovered. To this day, they don't know where it's at. Crazy. Let's go to Missouri. Hey, Missouri people. Right? Blink twice if you have (laughs) $312,000. Let's do it. Yeah. If you need help with the money. Um, I'm here. I have a duffel bag. Let's go. (laughs) Back to the serious. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's the story of Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty. Now, I bring this up because, because of the notoriety of the crime, because of mm-hmm. the notoriety of the perpetrators of the crime, and because the gas chamber... Uh, it was in effect for kind of a long time. I think I, I feel like that should have gone out of style a long, long time ago, but it didn't. So let's have a look at it. Maybe there it is. Ugh. Mm-hmm. This is the actual gas chamber. It is still in Missouri state penitentiary. It is uh, available for tours. You can check it out. I mean, like, and so while I have this up, I do want to say that as always, uh, Destination Fear is a source for this uh, show. And uh, in the episode, in the most recent season of Destination Fear, Alex and Chelsea are charged with investigating the gas chamber. Uh, she's recounting the story of Bonnie Hetty and Carl's execution. And she says, the guard would then knock three times on the outer door of the chamber to let them know it was ready. Like meaning the inmates were strapped in, the door was secured, knock three times. You're got, you're free to let the gas flow. Right. Uh huh. 
And then she knocked three times on the door. Immediately from inside, they got a knock back. <laughs> oh, fuck. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it was. Laura, I swear to God. And they freaked out. The audience, I freaked out when I watched it. I was like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, they, <laughs> they both ran out of. So it's in its own building. Okay, yeah. And they okay. ran out. Because um, the door, this big, huge door was shut. She mm. knocks three times on it and they immediately get a knock back and they freaked out. It was, dude, I would have too. Dude, for real. It was absolutely hysterical. Um, once, you know, they were out and they were safe. Mm. Um, she was like, I was trying to paint a picture. I should not have done that. And Alex is like, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> And I really like kind of resonated with that because mm-hmm. I feel like if it were you and me, the exact same thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't expect that. But um, eventually they did go back in and they sat in the two seats inside the chamber, which uh, you and I would do. Like I say that like, holy fuck, mm-hmm. that's fucked up. And I'm like, yeah, I'd have done it. Yeah, we would, not, yeah that, that would happen. You get tired. I mean, it's a lot of walking. It's a lot of walking, you know. Um, so they're talking to Bonnie Hetty, and they got the words "buried" and "kill" come through on the ovulus. Oh shit! Yeah, um, they also both felt really uncomfortable in that building the entire time. Like the strong sense that they should not be there, so they kind of skedaddled and they radioed Mm -hmm. Dakota and they were like look dude I know you wanted us to be in here but we don't really feel like we're welcome and so we're just gonna fucking hang out here on the bleachers outside um so the other thing was you know how Destination Fear they go they investigate the location and then they draw names and then it's their sleeping Mm -hmm. arrangement for the night Tanner was the one that got the gas chamber at this prison for a sleeping arrangement. And he's doing uh, an EVP ovulus session. And um, he was talking about Bonnie or um, he was talking to Bonnie Hetty and Carl Hall about Bobby Greenlees. Um, and he had to ask them, are you here? Are you listening to me? Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And he got a knock on the gas chamber wall. Creeps, dude. Yeah, super creeps. Super, super creeps. Um, I don't love it, uh, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, you know what? Uh, this is why we have this podcast. This is this is why we do what we do. But the, the sad part about it is, is that at the end of the day, there were people that were victims of everybody that were in this penitentiary and every single penitentiary we have ever covered. So to that end. Oh, poor little boy. This is Bobby Greenlees. Yes. He was born in 1947 and he died in 1953. He'd be about my parents' age. Yep. Mm -hmm. My mom was born in 1949. So he'd be about 74 years old. Uh-huh. Um, had he been allowed to continue his life. Um, so that is Bobby Greenlease, and that is um, one of the saddest, saddest pictures that uh, we have ever shown on this podcast. 
Yay! Yay! <laughs> super fucking depressed. <laughs> Hardcore bond. Um, so that is what I have on the Missouri State Penitentiary. As always, guys, um, you know, I love a good no before you go. It is located at 115 Lafayette Street in Jefferson City, Missouri, 65101. You can find them or email them about any of their tours. They've got historical tours, paranormal tours, all the tours at info at MissouriPenTours.com. If you have questions and you want to speak to somebody, you can call them at 866-998-6998. And uh, that is what I have for Missouri State Penitentiary Ghosts. Awesome. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it too. Um, I think I would much rather investigate an asylum then well we're gonna have to hit up missouri soon because we've been there's a lot of there's, there's a lot, lot in missouri mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's a lot we're gonna have to venture over there and do some investigation. we are gonna have to do that um so yeah uh guys i'll just be real honest it has been a long time since we did strange history are you ready for some i've got some for you laura i'm ready are you ready? Uh, strange history. This is where we kind of bring a little levity to the show. If we didn't bring enough in each part that we did. Um, so uh, typically I have a book that details the strange history. And I still have not found that. But I did find something really fun uh, on Facebook. And I really want to thank uh, Donna Kemp for posting it. Uh, this is... The hold on, I'm blind. Get your mm-hmm. progressives on, like what I got. Yeah, let me put on my glasses here. This is the list of components of Satan's spiritual structure and believed. <laughs> Why do you try to read this from a mile away? It's like the best part already. <laughs> Like, uh, she's leaning back super far. (laughs) I hate you, and you are a victim of all. I'm using my phone, I can't take a picture of it and blow it up. I can't, I really can't. Okay. Take a sip of wine. That'll help. All right. All right it will. Um, this is the list of components of Satan's spiritual structure and doorways to demonic possession. Um, basically, it's a list of doorways to demonic possession that certain groups of folks believe will, will get you demonically possessed. Um, Laura, let's count how many we have. All right. Ready? Keep track. Yep. Here we go. All right. Hold on. <laughs> All right. There's two columns and they're real tiny. I'm going to have to. Sure, like, sure, sure. Fuck off. Eastern religions. Yoga. Freemasonry. Illuminati groups. New Age religions. Church of Satan. I mean, Avi. Mm-hmm. Although I did know people that belonged to the Church of Satan, and and it, it's it's not what everyone says it is. True. Scientology. I um, agree with them. 
Um, point on that one. All right, go on. <laughs> uh oh. Uh, well, I'm gonna try. Hang on. Uh, Rosicrucianism. I don't even know what that is. I don't either. I barely said it. Astrology, tarot cards, Ouija boards. That's it, and that's all. That's a doorway to demonic possession. That's the list is over. Good night. We love you. <laughs> all right. There's actually more. Um, this oh, is you just can't read the rest. <laughs> Seriously, this is what a list of what people think is a doorway to demonic possession. Remote viewing. I don't know if that means like watching shit on your phone. I'm not really sure what that no, means. I think it's um... Zoom meetings. Right. <laughs> we're all fucked. <laughs> Great, we're all fucked. Yeah, I think it's like out of body experiences or something like that. I think that's one of the things though. It is, actually. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Remote viewing, palmistry, voodoo, earth worship. So if you love our planet, you're fucked. Right. Do you recycle? You're going to hell. Bye-bye. Uh, don't have a tree. <laughs> don't. Wicca. <laughs> Cyberpunk culture. <laughs> That's a fucking different one, all right? That's a different one. Divination, uh, mediation, vegetarianism. Y'all are <laughs> fucked. Spit out that fucking eggplant. Right? Um, Broccoli is the thing he say. Right? <laughs> I mean, Zane is right on that fucking line. He believes in and we all know vegans just go straight to hell. So go straight on. to hell. Lycanthropy. Uh, postmodernism. Backmasking. I don't know what that is. I've never even heard the term. All right. Me neither. Astral projection. Told you. That was already on here. All right. Necromancy. Rebirthing. Kabbalah. Lord of the Rings. Firewalking, levitation, alt comics, C O M I X. I I don't know. I don't know what that I don't is. Know what that is. Uh, Vampirism. Is that like... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All right. Yeah. Vampirism. Okay. Uh, trilateralism. Also, can I not get any kind of credit that I'm saying this? Having what? Doing great. I still don't know what half of this shit is. <clears throat> I don't either. Maybe you'll know what this is. Marijuana and pop parties. Oh, I might be familiar with that. Maybe a little. <laughs> LSD and shrooms. Never heard of it. Video games. Our kids are fucked. Right? And us too. We were playing Mario Brothers. Come on. A thousand percent. Harry Potter. Oh, I'm... Where were they? Again, guys, this is doorways demonic possession. Mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons, Halloween, and basically Satan rules the world, fornication, (laughs) skull and bones, rock music, heavy metal, the burning man, (laughs) it gets better, Twilight films, (laughs) (laughs) Raves and ecstasy. 
<laughs> Goth culture and Disturbia. Nice. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, the doorways to demonic possession. So basically, we are all demonically possessed. And, and if you're not, you're not doing it right. <laughs> if you're not, who's fucking left? I mean, frankly, <laughs> goddamn. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that is strange history. Um, if you agree or disagree with all or any of those, please feel free to message any other podcast but ours because we don't care. Um, anyway, that is that on that. Uh, Laura, why don't you let everybody know where they can follow us? <laughs> Find your tips for demonic possession at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HOH Podcast. And you can also watch our demonic possession on the TikTok at HOH Podcast, at HOH Carrie, and at HOH Co host Laura. That's it. Thank you so much for watching us. And our tips for demonic possession. Wow. The show notes for this one are going to be a little hard to write. I'm trying not to like invoke some shit. (laughs) We covered a lot lot for sure. Uh, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad that you you are. um, I'm glad that you battled the Rona and won. <laughs> Me too, except I'm like ready to go. I'm so ready to go to sleep. I'm like, right. I'm ready to take a shower and go to bed. I'm just exhausted. That's the only thing is I'm just super, super yeah. tired. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I am going to write our Patreon true crime after this because I don't have a job. So <laughs> I have lots of time on my hand. Uh, just the one hand. This hand is very busy. <laughs> We won't say with what. I literally <laughs> thought that and I was like, why did you say that? I don't know why did you say that? <laughs> it just lends itself for so many jokes. So with you, yeah. And also Archie would have gone there too. Anyway, all right. We love you guys and as always, stay safe out there because you never know who or what is listening. Also, um, I might kill Laura before the COVID. So, uh, co-host applications, H-O-A-H podcast at gmail.com. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. If she dies, she's going to haunt us. Uh, for sure. Right. Love you, Laura. And I will probably talk to you before you go to bed in like three minutes. All right. Love you too. All right. All right. Bye. Bye guys. We love you. <laughs>